And as we continue in our exposition through the book of Hebrews, we turn now to Hebrews chapter 4. Reading Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Hebrews 4, 1 to 13. This is the word of God. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day of these wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And this, in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached enter, not in because of unbelief. Again, he limited a certain day, saying, In David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath seized from his own works, as God did from his. Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This for the reading of God's word. Our text this evening comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, and we'll continue our exposition in the book of Hebrews, this time in chapter 4. But before we start, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on his word. O Lord, our God, we come before Thee once again, asking for Thy blessing on Thy word, Lord. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, and prepare our hearts to receive Thy word, Lord. And O Lord, prepare us to enter Thy rest. Prepare, Lord, for the day that Thou will come again. And we long, Lord, for the day that, just as we sang, Evermore my home shall be, O Jehovah, in thy holy house with thee. So prepare us, Lord, for that day. Make us citizens of heaven, Lord, and prepare us for thy kingdom, for thy rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we saw last time in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, important lessons from the wilderness. The author show us what happened to those who disobey and disbelief in God and His promises. They did not enter God's rest. Hebrews 3 verse 18. But if missing the earthly rest was terrible, then how much worse would it be to miss the heavenly rest? This is the warning that the author brings before us today. Not about the earthly rest, but the final rest. In this section, we see three generations were concerned with God's rest. First, Moses and Joshua, who hoped to come to enjoy the full rest, but didn't in the end. Then the generation of David, as quoted in Psalm 95, was still hoping and waiting for that rest to come. A rest that was still available for those who do not harden their hearts. Until finally it comes to our generation, which the same rest can be enjoyed, but we have here the risk of missing the rest once again. The time to obey and enter the rest, it's not past. And the final rest is not consummated yet. So therefore, there is still time. It's not too late to enter this rest. We still have the opportunity to enter into God's rest today. And to meditate this, we'll look into three points this evening. First, a rest that we shouldn't miss, verses 1 to 5. Second, a rest that remains, verses 6 to 10. And third, a rest worth laboring for, verses 11 to 13. So first, a rest that we shouldn't miss. Verse 1 tells us, Let us therefore fear. The therefore here is connecting to all that we have seen in the previous section. In light of all these that we have seen, therefore, let us fear. He is exhorting everyone, including himself, let us therefore fear. No one is exempt from this admonition. Not even the preacher, not even the writer of this letter. Let all of us fear. He's not saying, and you, oh backslider Christian, you better fear. No, he's telling to all of us, to the Christians and to everybody who's hearing this message, let us fear. Another way of reading this verse is this. Therefore, let us fear while the promise to enter his rest remains, that none of you should seem to come short of it, that none of you would miss this rest. We, all of us, need to fear, lest we fail to enter God's rest while it remains available. This implies that someday it will no longer be available anymore. It will come a day in which God's rest will no longer be available for us to enter. So we need to enter it before it's too late. And what is this rest? Rest has a notion of a place. And for that reason, we can enter rest. It speaks of a place. It was a promised land that the people in the wilderness hoped to reach, to come to that place. But it's more than a place. It's not less than a place, but it's certainly more 
than a place. It goes beyond the notion of a place, as verse 9 will show. One of the great dangers for a church, in a sense, is the sense of self-satisfaction. You could get too comfortable that you forget that this is a pilgrimage. We forget that this is not the final destination yet. We get too comfortable with where we are. The fate of the wilderness generation should be a warning, a reminder for us, a lesson that there is no room for smugness and complacency in the church. We are called to fear. Just as a pilgrim, a pilgrim who is going in his journey, fears not reaching the final destination. So we should fear the danger of not reaching the final goal. We need to be reminded of the danger of not entering into God's rest. And the fear here is a, a stimulus to believe and obey. To believe that believers will enjoy this final rest one day. And to obey as we are called to follow Him. Why? Verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. So the gospel is not a New Testament invention. The gospel doesn't come into place when the New Testament comes. No, the gospel was already preached to the wilderness generation in the Old Testament. They heard it, and yet they reject the gospel. What they were rejecting in the Old Testament is the very same gospel that is preached unto us today. Simply hearing the gospel preached is not enough. Just as it didn't save the wilderness generation despite all that they heard, they heard the gospel being proclaimed to them by Moses, the great prophet. But just hearing is not enough. They heard the good news about entering the promised land, yet they failed to enter it. They heard the same promises, but they didn't have the same response of faith as did Caleb and, jo and Joshua. Without faith, there is no profit in simply hearing the good news. So it's good that you are here today hearing the message. But if you don't take hold of the promise by faith, then it has no benefit. If you don't hear these, you take hold of the promise and you obey God's commands, then you will find no rest, just as the wilderness generation didn't. There is a sober warning about preaching here. That while for some, the preaching is breaking the hearts, it's taking us closer in our journey towards God, bringing us closer to Him, to others, it is hardening the heart even more. Just to listen about the good news, about a rest, it's not enough if you never enter it. This rest can only be accessed by those who believe as verse 3 explain, explains, believers do enter rest. Verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into this rest, into rest. God swore that the unbelieving generation would not enter his rest, but rest remains for those who believe. There is still a rest for those who believe. And this is a quote from Psalm 95, verse 11. But here it is abbreviated as an oath, in oath form. 
For we which have believed do enter into the into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. This is an oath that God is making. They shall certainly not enter my rest. The if here is making the first clause of a conditional clause. If this happens, if they enter my, re my rest after I have sworn that they would not enter, then I am not God. Then my word will not be true. So they will surely not enter. This is how sure this promise was. But on the flip side of that, the same firmness that those who don't believe will not enter his rest applies for those who do believe. That as surely those who don't believe will not enter, those who do believe will enter. The promise is sure. They will enter into rest. For we which have believed do enter into rest. It's a sure promise. It's guarantee. It's not a maybe gospel, but it's guarantee that those who believe will come into God's rest. The point of this verse is simple. Those who believe enter God's rest as surely as those who don't believe don't enter. They fail to enter, not because God's rest wasn't ready, wasn't available for them. The text says that rest is ready since the foundation of the world. Verse 4. For he spake in a certain place. By the way, this is a quote from Genesis 2, verse 2. He knows very well where this comes from. But what matters here is what God is saying. He wants to draw us, our attention to what the Lord is saying here. Where he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise... And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. The point of this verse is simple. God's rest was ready from the foundation of the world. When God created the world, his rest was ready. But why did God have to rest? It's not because he was tired from all his work, but because the work was complete. The work was done. It was complete. So God entered his rest. As God finished the work of creation, he rested on the seventh day. That doesn't mean that God stopped upholding the universe by the word of his power, but that the work of creation was complete. And the seventh day becomes not only a place of rest, as we saw, but also entering into fellowship with God, into his presence to enter into God's rest is not leisure. To come into the day of rest is not about leisure, but entering into fellowship with Him for everything is complete. We can rest in the seventh day because we recognize that all is complete in Him and we can now enjoy having fellowship with Him. And after mentioning God's rest, the author goes back to, exhort, to the exhortation of the danger of missing the opportunity to enter this rest. In verse 5, the author quotes again from Psalm 95. A sober reminder that although God's rest was available, they didn't enter because of unbelief. On the, on the one hand, 
They had so many privileges. They were rescued by God, and rest was available to them. But on the other hand, they reject God. They reject the offer of rest. They reject the promise of rest. For this reason, the author warns us to fear. The consequences of drifting away are severe, and we have the same danger of taking for granted and forgetting His rest. So fear, so that you don't miss His rest. God's rest, a much better rest, is available today. And yet you might, you might miss this because of unbelief, the same unbelief. If you are here today, you already have a special privilege. You are hearing His word being proclaimed. But you have the same danger of unbelief. Just to hear about the good news of the gospel, it's not enough. Just to hear the gospel doesn't save you if this is not your gospel. If you don't make this gospel your gospel, then you likewise will not enter this rest. Just to hear about a rest doesn't give you rest if you don't actually enter it. This is a warning to fear. Fear the danger of missing God's rest. And this fear is not to disable us, but to motivate us to pursue even more His rest. Fear so that you don't fail to enter God's rest, because the chance of entering His rest remains today. A rest that remains, our second point. Now, the author emphasizes not they didn't enter, but that a rest remains. The author repeats his argument in verse 6, saying that those to whom the gospel was preached first miss this, but a rest remains and we must enter. The sober reality to be reminded that not all those who hear the gospel are saved. We know that very well in our lives. And not all those who hear the message being proclaimed, sometimes even for so long, are not necessarily saved. Not all those who walk the pilgrimage actually come to the promised land. Many of us carry the sorrow in our lives of having unconverted family members or dear friends that walk with us for so long in this pilgrimage, but in some point drift away. So not just by hearing, not simply hearing, that doesn't guarantee that you enter His rest. They are now going on their way to the city of destruction, not to the heavenly Jerusalem, but to the city of destruction. This is a reality that only that not only the Bible tells us, but that we taste with bitterness in our own lives to see people who once walked with us now walking away in different ways. And after mentioning the wilderness generation, the author introduces the perspective of two characters about rest, David and Joshua. Joshua 21 verse 44 says, and the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that he swore unto their fathers. Well, but that rest given to Joshua cannot be the final rest, can it? That 
could not have been the final rest that God has promised. Because hundreds of years after that, after they have already entered Canaan, David was still waiting for a rest to come. So that rest that was accomplished in Joshua's day could not have been the final rest. So it was a rest, that is true. But it was temporal. It was limited. It was a taste of the final and promised rest. Verse 8 says, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another rest? The name Joshua in Greek translates as Jesus, as we already saw other time. So Jesus here refers to Joshua, the translation of Joshua's name in Greek. How it was not the final rest, because later on, we still have the expectation of another rest to come. So finally, when they enter the promised land, they are still waiting for a rest to come. The salvation and rest of the thing through Joshua was never meant to be the final one. Even the kingdom built through David and Solomon was never meant to be the final kingdom. Only through Jesus, only through Jesus, we have the establishment of the final, perfect kingdom and rest. Only in Jesus do we have access to the rest after which we will seek for no other rest. Only in Him, our wait for a final rest comes to an end, finally. The author compares what we have through Jesus and what the Old Testament people had through other mediators. He compared with Moses, with Joshua, with David, with Melchizedek, and the conclusion is the same over and over again. Jesus is better. Although all these mediators were great, although they brought temporal relief in different kinds, Jesus is better. Only He brings the final and perfect rest. God's rest continues available today. And if we want to enjoy God's final rest, we need to examine our hearts for the same kind of unbelief that committed the people in the wilderness. That is the conclusion he gives in verse 9. The rest that the Israelites enjoy as they enter the land was typological. That is, it was pointing forward to a rest that would come one day, once and for all, to a final rest. This is why the author can now turn to us and apply saying, there remains a rest, because that one was not the final one. And now the author is bringing together Israel rest in the land and God's rest in the seventh day. The word used here for rest is different than the word that he has used throughout this chapter before. The word that he uses here is sabbatismus, from where we have our word Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. So now he's introducing another type of rest, the Sabbath rest. So finding a rest is more than a place of rest. It's also a place of communion with God. Just as as we come in the day of rest of the week to have communion and fellowship with God, God's promised rest 
was more than a physical land. The physical land gave them a physical rest. The Sabbath day gave us a taste of the final Sabbath rest of communion with God. And now thus this promise includes the promise of a land. Well, it does. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, 9 to 12, it speaks about this. It speaks about the promise of a land for God's people. The Lord talks many times about the land that the Lord would give them. But it includes more than that. It included more than a land, than a piece of ground. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy says, And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Even after the Israelites were established on that land, in the promised land, not all these things were fulfilled. Yes, they tasted a time of peace, but it was for a short time. Not long, long after, Israel was already in war again. They didn't enter the final rest. They didn't rejoice before the Lord forever. Actually, they went back to sin not long after they entered the land. They never rest completely from their enemies. And openly, the rejoicing in the Lord, this rejoice in the Lord is a matter of heart allegiance and not an earthly kingdom. We don't come to that rejoicing by an earthly kingdom, by our but by our heart allegiance to the Lord. You probably know the saying that the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper. Well, this chapter is certainly very up to date. With all that is happening in the world right now, this chapter is very much up to date. The author was writing to the Hebrews convert who were under persecution, feeling the danger of abandoning Christ and going back to shadows. They were at the edges of facing the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, nowadays, we have Israelites who are suffering under a severe war, but is still holding back the shadows and not looking up to Christ. You see the very danger that the author to the Hebrews was warning them and preparing them. It's happening again. And I'm not here to judge the legitimacy of the war, but to say that the Israelites will only find the true rest in Jesus Christ. Because rest is not a matter of a piece of land, but of entering into God's rest and communion with Him. Joshua or David did not bring the final rest because the Bible still speaks of a, com a coming rest after them. Israel did experience to some degree this rest, for some time at least. But the fullness of this rest will only be obtained in heaven. And this final rest in heaven is promised not only to the Old Testament Israelites, but to all the people of God. Verse 9. We were made God's people by our union with Christ, as we saw last time. Now, what was a restricted promise to the Old Testament people is shared with the believers around the globe. As Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come unto me all, all Jews and Gentiles, come unto me all, 
Ye that labor and I have and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The promise of rest remains, and he makes it available to all who come to him and only through him. And this rest is available to us today. Verse 10. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. What does this rest look like? What this Sabbath rest looks like? Well, just as God entered, rested from his works of creation on the Sabbath day, so does the believer when he enters God's rest. He rests from his works. We rest from our works. The rest that believers long for is a greater rest than the one obtained by Joshua. It's a rest like God's rest. A rest that we can look back and say, our work has been finished. That's it. We fought the war. We ran the race. The pilgrimage came to an end. That's what it means to enter finally this rest once and for all. Joshua's rest was temporal. It lasts for a couple years, but soon enough war started again. But God's rest is eternal. That's it. The time to battle will come to an end. And when will we enter this rest? When will be this day that we will finally enter this rest once and for all in a complete and perfect way? Well, unless Christ comes back first, we enter this rest when we die. For the believer, we enter once and for all in the complete sense of it, this rest, when we die. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven say unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. From henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. For the Christian's death is not a separation. Death is not the end for the Christian, death symbolized, represents entering into this rest, coming to the final reward. It means that our works are complete. Our battles were fought. We ran the race. That's it. Our sufferings now come to an end. And we can now enjoy this rest with God forevermore. Our eternal our eternal inheritance with God, of communion with our Creator, the perfect and final rest. Our rest remains, and it is accessible, and it is secure with Jesus in heaven. But the last section also speaks that this rest is worth laboring for. Such a tremendous rest that it is worth laboring for. It. Verses 11 to 13. We saw that there is a coming rest. And now verse 13 reminds us that this is not it yet. This is not heaven yet. Yes, there is a rest and it remains and it is coming. 
but it's not heaven yet. This is not the final rest yet. So therefore, let us labor. Therefore, we still got work to do. There is still work to be done. We are not there yet. Notice now, this is a call to all believers. The author is once again including himself. Let us, therefore, labor. If you are a Christian, you enlisted into God's war. You enlisted in Christ's army. You sign up to be a worker of His harvest. The life of a Christian is a life of work, diligence, and discipline. And I'm not talking of work of righteousness. No. As if we are trying to obtain salvation. No. What I'm saying is that once we are saved, now we labor for His kingdom. And the idea of laboring for rest seems almost contradictory in our minds. How can you labor for rest? But the point is that this is not a a playground. Christianity, the church, is not a playground. This is a battlefield. And there is work to be done on this side of eternity. The rest will follow later. But now... We must work. Many Christians nowadays think that once you sign up for Christianity, you can just lay down and enjoy the ride. That is it. I don't care about anything else anymore. That's not the case. We are called to be diligent, to labor. Until we enter that rest, we labor to the building up of His kingdom, to glorify His name, to magnify His name, to proclaim His gospel, we labor. We cannot take for granted the promises that we have received. Otherwise, we will fall into the same unbelief as of the wilderness generation. Do not take for granted where we are, where you are sitting in right now. Remember, The wilderness generation had all privileges and yet died in the desert without tasting this reality. And what is one of the greatest privileges that we have? We have the Word of God. Verse 12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Just like God is living and powerful, His Word is living and powerful. He shares the same attributes. And we have His Word. And those who disobey it those who disobey His word will face severe consequences. The picture here is of a two-edged sword, really emphasizing His judgment, a sword of judgment. Those who disobey will, will not escape His word. They will be cut down from before Him. But just as a two-edged sword cuts in both Directions, His Word as well, can penetrate the believer, not to destroy him, but to save him. 
That's why God's word never returns void. It is right now either condemning you, cutting you down and condemning you, judging you, or it is being used to save you. But either way, His word never returns void. It's a two-edged sword that never misses the target. His word is so powerful that divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The Bible doesn't really speak of a difference between soul and spirit. These two words are used interchangeably sometimes. But the metaphor is clear. Just as it, a powerful sword has the power to penetrate the joint all the way to the marrow and separate it. Only the most powerful sword can penetrate the soul of man and expose it. Commentator and preacher Philip Hughes say this. Our author is not concerned to provide here a psychological or anatomical analysis of the human constitution, but rather to describe in graphic terms the penetration of God's word to the innermost depth of man's personality. You see, the word of God is so powerful that it can penetrate and expose anything. Nothing can remain hidden from him. Just as the marrow is exposed from the bone, so our soul is exposed before the Lord. Our innermost parts are made manifest before the Lord by his word. It penetrates our soul. It uncovers our innermost parts. The word of God reveals who we truly are inside. What no one else can see. The word of God makes it manifest. God knows whether you are believing in him or not. Whether we are obeying him when no one else is seeing or not. God knows all things. Verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him. With whom we have to do. No creature can hide from the creator. No creature can hide from the creator. The idea of being completely exposed before someone already is a, a threatening picture to us. It's hard to imagine. It's shameful. But this is more than that. We are exposed before the one to whom we will give an account, the one who will judge us. There is nothing that we can hide from him. No device of man can hide us from God. None of us should think that we can disobey God and then somehow hide from Him. Deceive Him and escape from His sword of judgment. The same picture that we have in Revelation. Revelation 1.16 about the Son of Man. Revelation 1.16 says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. 
and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Ultimately, it is to him that we will give an account. To the Son of Man, to Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who will judge our lives. He is the one to him our whole lives are exposed before his eyes, as naked before him. The same one who is the gateway to eternal blessings, to the eternal rest, also holds the sword of judgment in his hand. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ. It's, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting word that the author chose him here for to give an account. To give account. This expression is actually the word. He used the same expression in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. That we will give a word, a report, an account of our life to God. We'll give a word to Him, a report. John Calvin applies. We ought, we ought to obey God's word in sincerity and with cordial affection. Because God knows our hearts has assigned to his word the office of penetrating even into our innermost thoughts. Whenever his word is set before us, we ought to tremble, for nothing is hid from him. See, the word of God is piercing and dividing, and nothing can remain hidden from him. His word is powerful and exposes our hearts our hearts before him and he will judge us his word is piercing and then exposes our words before him to see if our words are conformed to his he's the one who judges us to judge our thoughts and it's only this way in the way of faith and obedience a way of submission to god's word that we can find the final rest. There's no other way, because nothing can hide from Him. This chapter connects the creational rest in Genesis 2 with the redemptional, redemption rest of Psalm 95. And perhaps the Sabbath rest unifies all these themes into a much greater aspect. This rest is both Creational, set from the beginning of the world, is that also a fruit of redemption. He created us for these and He redeemed us for this communion with God. And it is also eschatological. We will enter this rest. We were created for this final rest. The way to rest could not be through disobedience. The Israelites did not experience this final rest, not through Moses, not through Joshua, not through David. This rest is only possible through faith and faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of us are following what is happening in the war between Israel and Palestine right now. After so many years, it almost appears that Israel simply has no peace over and over, war after war. No peace, no rest. 
It's just unceasing war after war. Well, the answer for peace, for rest, for Israel, it's Christ. The answer for a final rest is Christ. Not talking about a ceasefire or an earthly temporal rest. No, the perfect and final rest is only through Christ. It's only available to those who trust in Jesus Christ. The same rest that Moses looked forward, that David waited for this promised, only possible through Christ. You see, Joshua marched on Israel with the Israelites, and there was no final rest there. Because ultimately, there is no rest in that land. There is no final rest in this world. But we look for a city whose builder is God. Not on this world. Not a piece of ground here. But a city whose builder is God. And there and only there we say, there is the final rest. One of the most innate desires of human beings is the desire for peace. The desire to rest. Not the desire for leisure and laziness. That came with the fall. But the desire to rest from our struggles. And to rejoice in the Lord. And the answer to that. Jesus said in Matthew 11:28 Come unto me and I will give you rest. The Lord Jesus calls those who hear his promise, those who hear his word to come to him. And he will surely give them rest. Jesus promises this to anyone who comes to him. There is a rest available. A rest for the weary, for the brokenhearted, for the sinner man. A rest is still available. And it is only through Jesus. No other way. We might seek earthly means to find temporal rest. But the only perfect and final rest is only available through Jesus. So come to Him, and He will give you rest. Let's pray. Our most holy God, creator of the universe, Lord, we come before Thee, recognizing that so many times we lose sight of Thy promises, Lord. We lose sight of the one final rest that remains for the believer, Lord. We take for granted all the benefits that we have. And we seek sometimes not for a rest, in the biblical sense, but we seek for laziness. So, oh Lord, forgive us. And, oh Lord, equip us, Lord, for this pilgrimage 
Equip us, Lord, to this, to fight the war that is before us. To march towards the celestial city. And to proclaim this message, a message of rest for the weary. And, O Lord, we confess that this rest is only possible through Jesus. No other way. No earthly way. But through Jesus Christ alone. And, O Lord, we confess our sins before Thee, because we know that nothing can remain in secret before your eyes, Lord. And it will come a day that thou wilt judge, Lord, this world. That we will appear before thy throne and our acts will be manifested before thee, Lord. And we will stand before the judge of all. And we confess, Lord, that the only way that we can stand secure it is through the blood of Jesus. So, O oh Lord, bring us into this rest. We long, Lord, to rest from our fights, our fight against sin, against Satan, against the world. We long to enter into perfect communion and fellowship with Thee. And we pray, Lord, that each and every Sabbath day, will be a foretaste of heaven. Help us to delight more, Lord, the Sabbath day, to treasure this day of rest that we have. And use this day, Lord, to conform us to the perfect rest that is coming. So we pray, Lord, haste the day. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.